0: Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. At the end of the last chapter, we witnessed the execution of Stephen. And we were also introduced to a new character in our narrative, Saul. He was described as a young man with significant authority. And the reason that we know that Saul... Wielded influence is because it was at his feet that the false witnesses who stoned Stephen laid their ropes. In other words, Saul was the one who oversaw the execution. Though not an actual stone thrower, he did give his approval. And we will see Saul come to play a central role in the book of Acts. For now, he's a young, a zealous man, and he's bent on destroying the church of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 8, I'll read verses 1 through 8. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. From the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing. In that city, this is God's word. As a young and zealous and religiously devout rabbi or teacher, Saul had something to prove. He was a student of the well-respected Rabbi Gamaliel, whom we met back in chapter 5. And in verse 1 of chapter 8 that I just read, it notes that Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. This began a new period in the early church, a period of persecution. Now, we've seen persecution before up to this point in the book of Acts, but not to the extent that we're about to see it. Because we read, and on that day, a great persecution began against the church. Persecution is a word that you might only be vaguely familiar with. We read it here and several other places in the New Testament. And you hear me pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters during our time of congregational prayer. But what does persecution really mean? It's what I want to try to answer this morning. And as we consider the first part of Acts chapter 8, I also want us to see from Scripture how persecution affects the church. And then we'll look at how the Word of God instructs us as the church to respond to persecution. What is persecution? Good place to start. Well, the word actually means to chase or to follow or to pursue. So it carries with it this idea of of hunting someone in order to bring them down like an animal. This is consistent with how Saul reacted towards those early followers of Jesus. Verse 3, Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. It's very descriptive language. To ravage means to treat shamefully or with injury. Saul was going into homes in Jerusalem, and with the help of temple soldiers, he had an armed guard with him. He's taking Christians by force in order to put them in prison. And not only was it men, but the text points out that it was women as well. And this was especially shocking since women were usually left alone in matters such as these. It was typically thought enough to punish the male head of the household. That was typically thought to be sufficient. But so strong was Saul's hatred of the church that he did not even leave the women behind to tend to the children that would have obviously been left behind. So on the extreme end, to persecute someone is to harass him or her in order to persuade him to give up his religion. In this case, Saul's goal was to so intimidate the believers that they renounced the name of Jesus. But persecution doesn't always go to that extreme. A person can be persecuted simply by being harassed or intimidated or threatened because of their beliefs. So persecution is not limited to uh, Christianity. It has to do with an attack on religion or an attack on spiritual convictions in general. However, we are concerned with persecution against Christians because that's what's happening in our text and in our time. So there's both active persecution and passive persecution. Obviously, if someone is literally breaking down your door with a group of soldiers and their purpose is to carry you off to prison because you're maybe hosting a a secret church in your living room, that is active persecution. It occurs to this day. Happens in China, happens in mid-eastern countries like Iran, even Saudi Arabia. But passive persecution, the other type, is also a present reality. And at this point in time, living in America, we are most prone to experience the passive form of persecution. Whereas we don't have to fear the, the church being stormed one morning by armed men, which was something that did happen in Nigeria, where I served for nine years, uh, happened at churches at the hands of, of Muslim extremists coming in the back door during the service with AK-47s. We might not be experiencing that, but we do certainly feel pressure at times because of our Christian convictions, and increasingly so. This pressure might come in the form of ridicule for holding to you know so-called archaic thinking in the midst of a society who... Many, in many cases, uh, worships the God of science. It may come in the form of a church being pressured to hire a homosexual as we see such provisions being made for in something like the Equality Act. We witnessed it a couple of administrations back in another form when certain Christian ministries were specifically targeted for IRS audits. And we see it in TV shows, we see it in movies, that belittle Christians by making them out to be petty or naive or old-fashioned. So we're seeing passive persecution ramping up. Currently, in the ways that big tech is, is censoring posts on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, posts that promote Christianity or Christian values, those are being censored. And passive persecution is the precursor. It's the lead-up to active persecution. So for that reason, we shouldn't take it lightly. And this is a discussion that we need to have. Active persecution is the direct use, the direct use of threats, intimidation, coercion, or physical force to try to get someone to stop practicing or to stop verbalizing their commitment to Jesus. Passive persecution is the indirect attempt to discourage someone from practicing or verbalizing their commitment to Jesus through something like a ridicule or censorship or policies or legislation. So whether it's Saul yanking Christians out of their homes with the authority of the chief priest behind him or a government that's implementing policies in order to discourage Christians from obedience to the word of God, it all falls under the category of persecution. And even though it is man who carries out the persecution, we should never forget that Satan is behind it. Persecution is at its heart a spiritual attack. It doesn't matter whether the person carrying out the persecution knows that they are attempting to destroy the church or simply following the orders of somebody else. Behind any attempt to restrict the advancement of the kingdom of God is the enemy of God. Satan worked through Pharaoh to enslave the Israelites. Satan worked through Ahab's wife Jezebel to call for the death of Elijah. Satan worked through the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar to cast Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the furnace because they refused to bow down to the idol. Satan worked through Pilate and the Roman soldiers to crucify Jesus. And Satan worked through the chief priest, as we've seen, to flog and imprison the apostles all of the human elements and all of that, they were simply vessels. But that doesn't mean they were innocent. They still made their own decisions to do what they did against the people of God. So I'm not discounting Mandrol and all this. What it does mean is that these men that were used by Satan, they were accomplices in the ultimate goal of the kingdom of darkness, which is to hinder the spread of the gospel. It's to hide the word of God. It's to destroy the people of God. Paul, the apostle, who we at the moment in Acts chapter 8 know as Saul, had unique insight into what Satan was up to. Listen to how he words it in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Paul wrote these words from a Roman prison. Persecuted for what? For his faith in Jesus. He knew the cruel hands of flesh and blood that had flogged him and beaten him and thrown him into a deep, dark, wet cell. But he also knew that it wasn't really people. It wasn't flesh and blood that he was ultimately up against. It was spiritual forces of wickedness. And this perspective is Incredibly helpful because it will keep you and me from becoming bitter against those who utter, uh, who utter harsh words or who censor the truth, or even in some cases, like it's currently happening in North Korea, those who put Christians into hard labor camps where they typically don't make it out of. Who receives persecution? Well, it's not just any professing Christian. It's not just the the average churchgoer that sits in a pew and sings a few songs on a Sunday morning. It's not the respectable person who's a member of a church because maybe that's the church that they grew up in or because it's expected by those around them to to attend that church. I want you to listen again to Paul's words about the persecuted. Paul, formerly Saul, who knew what it meant to be A persecutor and persecuted. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. All those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a promise. Not a promise we like to hear. All those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So it's not just anyone who claims to be a Christian that will be persecuted. It is those followers of Jesus who actually desire to live godly lives. The world doesn't really care about passive Christians, those who name the name of Jesus, but there's not really anything strikingly different about their words or their actions, not anything different from their non-Christian neighbors. Satan's kingdom is not threatened by a dead church that goes through the motions but never is actually used of the Lord to bring people out of the darkness and into light. Satan is not threatened by that. No, it's those whose lives are marked, are branded with godliness. Those whose lives have the very stamp of the character of God upon them. Those are the ones that will be attacked. So take heart when you experience any form of persecution For your faith, because this is how Jesus put it, Matthew chapter 5, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice. That should be our reaction. In other words, you know you're over the target if your plane is receiving flat. You know that you're pleasing the Lord if the enemies of the Lord are attacking. How does persecution affect the church? How does persecution affect the church? Well, first, a persecuted church is a scattered church. Recall at this point in history, the church is located only in Jerusalem and in the immediate surrounding areas, the suburbs, so to speak. So though all the followers of Jesus together, all the followers of Jesus comprise the church, they are meeting in small groups and homes all over the city. Also remember that all the followers of Jesus at this point are Jewish. But all that is on the verge of changing. It was never God's plan for his people to stay in one place. Jesus said back in Acts chapter 1, You shall be my witnesses even unto the remotest part of the earth. On the day of Stephen's death, we read a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. So suddenly it was not only the apostles that were feeling the heat, it was everybody. Everybody who was a follower of Jesus. And what was the result of this persecution? Our text says, verse 1, they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Persecution had a scattering effect. The word for scatter here is not the word meaning to chaotically fling or or cause disarray. It refers to scattering seed upon the ground. So what Satan meant for harm, through the agency of man, God used for his purposes. The scattering effect of persecution got the followers of Jesus out of Jerusalem and into other parts of Israel. Jesus said, you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, check, we got that, and in all Judea and Samaria. So Judea and Samaria, here we come. Maybe you're wondering at this point, would the believers have eventually left Jerusalem if they hadn't been forced out? Perhaps, probably so. We'll never know. Because God so arranged it, his appointed means of motivating his people to leave Jerusalem in order to fulfill the words of Jesus, to be his witnesses, God's appointed means was to use persecution. This is an intentional scattering. And just like certain types of seed are sown in the ground by first scattering them across the surface, so the people of God are now scattered. Why? To increase their effectiveness. Persecution against the people of God does not hinder the work of God. Let me say that again. Persecution against the people of God does not hinder the work of God. If anything, it propels it forward. We we view hardship and distress on account of our profession of faith as something to be avoided at all costs. That's how we view it. But what if the effect upon our lives as a result of persecution is exactly what God intends to use to accomplish his purposes. In 1949, the national government of China, they were defeated by the communist forces. In the process, a number of missionaries lost their lives. And those that did not were forced to leave the country by the new communist government, which is still in power, by the way. Within well, in one mission agency alone, the China Inland Mission, there were 637 missionaries forced out. Within four years of them being forced out, 286 of those former missionaries to China were spread across Southeast Asia and into Japan. So those missionaries, they had to leave one mission field. And I guarantee you they didn't want to leave but it scattered them like seed into many other regions. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph told his brothers who had so many years before sold him into slavery as he's looking back over his life, realizing what God had been up to. Joseph says this to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So the same thing can be said about Satan's attacks against the church through persecution. The enemy means it for evil, but in God's providence and power, he takes what is intended to harm his people, and he uses it to preserve many others who otherwise might not have heard the gospel. Let's think on a spiritual level about these things. So a persecuted church is a scattered church. Secondly, a persecuted church is a suffering church. Stephen suffered death as a result of standing for truth. Verse 2 says, Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. If someone was executed as a criminal, which Stephen was, he hadn't done anything wrong, but he was executed as a criminal, Jewish tradition refused public mourning for that person. But Stephen was so revered, Not only did those who knew the strength of his character mourn publicly, loud wailing here, they did it very loudly. They made a show of it. The church had lost a great man, a spirit-filled man, a man who had so much potential. And in his place, who rose up? Saul, a vicious persecutor. Saul, who's hunting down Christians like dogs, who's making them suffer. In case you haven't noticed, let me point out that thus far in our study of Acts, life has not been especially easy for the apostles. But now, now it's gotten difficult for those believers who are not even in prominent positions of leadership. Now all the Christians are drawing the attention of the authorities. Christians in Jerusalem were losing their homes and their possessions and their freedom Families were being separated. So much that makes life worth living. Family, community, the satisfaction of a day's labor, freedom of mobility, to go where you want to go, to do what you want to do. All those things are being disrupted, to say the least. And those who saw the writing on the wall and had not yet been picked up, they packed up and they left the city. Can you imagine? Leaving your home, home you've invested years of your life, and work, and finances into. Leaving your comfortable life, leaving your security, and moving to another region. The only other option is, was well, to lose your freedom altogether. So what do you do? Well, you accept the circumstances that the Lord has allowed to befall you. You trust in his plan. You do what you need to do. The problem is, is that we have gotten so comfortable and so apathetic, so used to life as usual, that we, me included, we view persecution as abnormal. The New Testament doesn't view it that way. We view it as something that happens to other Christians in other places. And so we're shocked when it begins to come close to home. We don't deserve such treatment. We should be immune from it. We're Americans. In a phrase, we have an undeveloped theology of suffering. Let me put that another way. We forget or we ignore what the New Testament clearly teaches the godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The Christian life is not an amusement park, it's a battlefield. Peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace is what Jesus gives you and me in the midst of conflict. John 16:33. Jesus said, "These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take courage, I have overcome the world." So we like the part where Jesus says, "I have overcome the world." We don't like the part where he says, "In the world you will have tribulation." In order for it to be a comfort to us that Jesus has overcome the world, we must first accept that the devil works through the world system in order to disturb our peace, to shake the church, and to threaten those people and things that we find security in. When do you cry out for the peace that Jesus gives when you're not feeling that peace? I'm not saying that we're supposed to enjoy suffering. We certainly don't seek suffering. What I'm saying is that we must not be surprised when suffering, uh, as a result of persecution, comes our way. Jesus plainly said to his disciples in John 15:20, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So when I speak of developing a theology, a, a mindset, an approach to suffering, what I mean is that we as individuals and as a church will do well to embrace God's purposes for persecution when it arrives. And one of the ways we do that is by acknowledging that suffering for righteousness' sake is simply part of being a Christian. It's not abnormal. In fact, even more than that, it is a sign of belonging to Jesus. Listen to Romans eight sixteen: The Spirit himself testifies that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. The Holy Spirit who filled Stephen. The Holy Spirit poured out upon the believers on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit given to you the moment you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. He testifies, he confirms from within Whether or not you are a child of God. To you. And if you are a child of God, then you are set to inherit the unimaginable riches and glory and wonders of the eternal kingdom of God. There will be no more pain, no more tears, no more suffering. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. All that Jesus is set to inherit, all that's His, His children will also receive, but not yet. For the moment we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. You see, Jesus gave us the pattern to follow. First suffering, and then glory. But hear this. Hear me here. Jesus suffering on the cross was a once and for all suffering. There's a distinction that I'm going to make between our suffering for Jesus and the suffering of Jesus. Jesus alone lived a perfect life. He alone died a death that canceled sin by receiving the punishment in himself that sin deserves. Only he could do that. He alone rose from the dead in order to give his life through his spirit. And it's only because Jesus defeated sin and death that the Christian, you and me, have any hope of eternal life. And also, it's the only reason we have any ability to overcome sin. Here's the key. Because Jesus suffered for you, you are called to suffer with him. Remember, persecution comes as a result of what? following Jesus. Suffering does not save you. Don't make that mistake. Suffering does not save you. Jesus already suffered the only death that could save you. Suffering does not earn you points with God. Jesus already earned God's approval. He's already made you a beloved child of God. Your suffering has no redemptive value. It's not helping you out in terms of your salvation. That's why we we reject the Roman Catholic notion that our suffering somehow adds to what Jesus has done. We can't add anything to what Jesus has done. If you try to add to what Jesus has done, then what you are saying is that his death and his resurrection is really not enough. That you've got something else you can do on top of it. Suffering adds nothing to your salvation. It is not redemptive. But here's the difference. Suffering is not redempted. Redemptive, but it is sanctifying. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning. Sanctification is the process of becoming more like Jesus in your character, in your attitude, and in your actions. And that's a lifelong process. Salvation happens in a moment. Sanctification takes a lifetime. Suffering for the sake of righteousness, it drives you deeper into the arms of Jesus. It puts you in a position to trust God more, to cling tightly to His Word, to pray more often, to pray more fervently. Who prays more when they're suffering? Everybody. So, if you receive the reality that you as a Christian will suffer persecution, then when it comes, you will not despair. You will not shake your fist at God. You will not wonder why life is so hard. What will you do instead? You will throw yourself upon the mercy of God. You will rejoice that you've been counted worthy to suffer shame for Jesus' sake. You position yourself to learn the lessons that God has for you. That's what suffering does. It's not redemptive. It doesn't help our salvation. It doesn't contribute anything to your salvation. It doesn't give you extra points with God. But suffering is sanctifying. It can never redeem you but it can make you more like Jesus. And that's what God wants it to do in your life. How does persecution affect the church? Well, as we've just seen, it brings the bride closer to the groom, the Lord Jesus. So finally, we ask, how should the church respond to persecution? How should the church respond to persecution? To answer that, let's look back at our text. So the result of the great persecution against the church of Jerusalem was that the believers were scattered into other areas of the land of Israel. The followers of Jesus were now positioned to proclaim Christ to those who were outside of Jerusalem. And though the persecution was not what anyone desired, it did serve to spread them out. Stephen... If you remember, he laid the groundwork in his speech in chapter 7 for what is now happening as a result of his death. You say, how do you do that? Well, what's the idea that Stephen kept coming back to? That which should have been obvious in the Old Testament, that which would, that, that he was pointing out, and that is that God is not bound to a place. God is not a localized God. The Jewish leaders had become fixated on the temple in Jerusalem as the place of God's presence. But God is with his people where? Wherever they go. In a similar way, the followers of Jesus were keeping the message of Jesus in Jerusalem. And that's not what God desired. Jesus clearly said before his ascension, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Judea and Samaria, we're seeing that happening now. And the persecution is having an opposite effect from what Satan intended. Yes, it is scattering the saints in Jerusalem. It's not comfortable. It's not desirable. It's not what we want. But it's scattering them to go forth and do exactly what Jesus said would be the case. Persecution creates divine opportunities for witness. In verses 4 through 8, they offer us a specific example. If you recall, Philip, he was one of the seven that was chosen alongside of Stephen to ensure that the widows were not overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Philip was one of the seven. He was not an apostle, but he was full of the spirit and of wisdom. And he took the opportunity of persecution to go and proclaim the message of Jesus' life and resurrection. He went to the people of Samaria. Think about the parable of the Good Samaritan. What do you remember about that? Samaritans were looked down upon by the Jewish people. That's the significance of the parable. None of the the Jewish men would help the man who had been beaten and robbed, but it was the Samaritan who helped him. Samaritans were looked down upon by the Jewish people. However, the Jews and the Samaritans, they lived right next to each other. Samaria was within the borders of Israel, and they were related by blood. The Samaritans were descendants of Israelites who had intermarried with foreign people. And so for this reason, they were not viewed as pure. They didn't have the right bloodline. They were outcasts. And the followers of Jesus in Jerusalem, they needed a little help. They needed a push to see outside of their immediate surroundings. Why did Jesus come? To seek and save the lost. That means Samaritans. But the way the gospel gets to them is if someone like Philip decides to carry it to them. And the Samaritans, they were ready to receive the word. Upon hearing Philip and witnessing the signs that were taking place at his hands, it says there is much rejoicing in that city. Sometimes our own desire for comfort creates complacency. We know that we should be taking the gospel to those who have not heard it. Those who are prepared by God to hear it, like the Samaritans were. Yet it takes a a shaking to scatter us. One effect of persecution is that God uses it to awaken his people to opportunities for proclaiming Jesus. Notice, too, what happened to the apostles, the leaders of the church. Back in verse 1, we read that the church in Jerusalem was scattered except the apostles. Interesting. Interesting. They stayed in Jerusalem. Jerusalem would continue to be the the headquarters of the church. It was not the leaders of the church who were scattered. It It was the everyday men and women just trying to live their lives and follow Jesus. They were the ones who were scattered. So it was a Stephen whose death was the spark that ignited this persecution. And it was a Philip who reacted by seeing it as an opportunity to further God's purposes. In 1949, when missionaries were forced out of China by the communists, they wondered what would happen to the Chinese church. That's a good question. Could the Chinese church survive without the missionaries who first preached the gospel to them? Could they survive those churches that have been planted by the missionaries? What about when these missionaries, these spiritual parents to the Chinese Christians left? What's going to happen? Would the church in China crumble under the horrific persecution that the communist forces inflicted upon it? And it was horrific, and it still is. There was an estimated 800,000 Protestants in China when the missionaries left, less than a million. Now, and there's no way to know for sure, but there are estimates anywhere from 30 to 60 million Protestants in China today. We really have no idea because when you're filling out the census in China, you don't put that you're a Christian. Many of those Christians aren't going to physical church buildings. They're meeting In underground churches, they're meeting in homes. They're blacking out the windows with dark curtains, and they're singing in a whisper. The persecution of the Chinese church, it drove the Chinese believers to take responsibility. Did they do it? Yeah, they did. It was now their turn to evangelize. It was their turn to disciple others. It was their turn to lead. And they still suffer persecution. To this day, but the persecution had the opposite effect of what Satan intended. It didn't destroy the church. The church grew numerically. More importantly, the church grew spiritually. And our Chinese brothers and sisters would put many of us to shame. When times get difficult for us as Christians, people will look to see how you're going to respond. They will wonder what motivates you, what gives you the hope that you have, what is keeping you calm in the midst of the storm. They're going to take notice. And you will have opportunities to witness that you have never had before. Will it be difficult? Oh, yeah. Will you suffer loss? Yep. Might not be material loss. That's a possibility but you might lose your job, probably lose your reputation. I mean, after all, isn't that what's happening with the cancel culture? It's all about people losing their reputation, right? But you will be positioned when persecution comes to proclaim the gospel in ways that was not possible before. Persecution scatters Christians, but it also scatters the seeds of the gospel, and I want you to hear that this morning. I want you to be encouraged by that. It offers greater opportunity for every Christian to proclaim Christ. Not just the Peters and the Johns, but the Stevens and the Phillips as well. We should not pretend we as a congregation, small as we are, out in the country as we are, we should not pretend that we will never be called to suffer persecution. It will be unwise to be unprepared. But we should also guard ourselves against fear because God does have a purpose in whatever he allows to happen. So as you go throughout this week and as you think about the text that we've looked at at this morning, I want you to pray about how you might begin to prepare yourself. What would that look like in your life? A lot of that is asking God for wisdom and trusting that he'll show you how to prepare yourself. But some things that come to mind immediately is scripture memorization. God forbid this ever happens in America, but What if suddenly you didn't have an access to a Bible? What if they were taken? We're seeing books being banned right now. How much of the Bible would you have stored away in your heart and your mind if that was the only Bible you had to read? How much time are you spending in prayer right now? Because when times get tough, it'll drive you to your knees, but it's a lot easier to spend time in prayer and draw close to the Lord when you're prepared to do so because you've already been spending time with the Lord. You've already been seeking his face. So pray about that this week. Asking the Lord to show you how you can prepare. I'm not fear-mongering this morning. I'm just trying to get us ready. I think we all see that there's some things coming down the pipeline that, that we as a church in America have not experienced we should not allow ourselves to be taken by surprise because that will only be our fault. But at the same time, and I'll leave you with this promise. When the ripples that we're seeing turn into waves, we can trust the promise spoken by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 43.2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. Let's pray. Father, this text this morning could be discouraging. But Lord, we ask you to help us to see it as encouraging. Because Jesus told us to rejoice when we experience some of these things that are spoken of when it comes to persecution. Lord, open our eyes to see difficult times as the gateway into greater opportunity for you to work in our lives and greater opportunity for you to use us for your gospel to go forth. Help us, Father, give us wisdom, prepare our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.